Good morning, church family. Well, you guys look good today. Good to see you guys. So we're going to be reading in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, if you want to join along with me. Matthew, chapter 22, starts out, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how do you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him in the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. When the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along <clears throat> with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to see you or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And, he sa and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness is inscripted on this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, all the way to the seventh. After them all, the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have you not read what said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, by, and they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which, great, which commandment, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love your Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you that we live in a country who we can, where we can still come and praise your holy name. Lord, we lift up this word to you, and we ask that your anointment on Jackie as he comes forward and teaches your word, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit moves about this room, Lord, and rests on each one of us to open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, Lord, to receive what you have for us. Lord, in this crazy, chaotic time of year, Lord, I just pray that we keep our eyes fixed on you, for you are the true gift of this season, this day, and every day, and we give you all the praise and glory for it. Amen. Kids, you're dismissed. See you guys. Have fun. So as we come to Matthew 22, one of the challenges, I think, anytime we, um, we teach the word is to try to stay in the context of what's going on. So to do that, you got to go all the way back to, to chapter 21. And if I make them read from 21 to 22... They start getting sad, looks in her eyes. and So we've seen Jesus in his triumphal entry come. You remember we talked about this. To the temple, in essence, looking for fruit, finding none, cleansing the temple, right? Chasing away the money changers. You saw the cursing of the fig tree. You saw three parables, each one uh, representing a different different things but the same ideal you know you're there's someone who's supposed to be responding who hasn't there's someone who's who's uh, been filled with hatred and is killing the servants of the vineyard owner or there was a son who said i'll do the work but he didn't do the work remember and each one of these illustrates the reality of the people whom jesus is ministering to and showing things like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees make a promise to God that they're going to follow him, but the people who are actually following him when he shows up are tax collectors and prostitutes who initially said, I'm not going to follow you. So in the parable of the two sons, you see the picture. The leadership that, that should have recognized and, and um, submitted to the coming of the Christ, rather... Uh, have already decided in their minds to kill him. And by their own mouths, they have proclaimed what will take place. Well, the owner of the vineyard is going to come and clear out the vineyard, and he's going to give it to others. And then you hear the story, right, about the 
wedding feasts. In the wedding feast, you have all these people who didn't want to come. And then the owner of the wedding feast says, well, forget about all those guys. You go and find everyone you can find so that the wedding halls will be filled. Now, none of those are in their own little private echo chamber. This is all that final week leading up to the crucifixion. And so are these questions we're going to look at today. This is all, this is all the, the, the groundwork is being laid. Jesus is recognizing the rejection of the religious authorities as they question his authority and who, does you, who do you think you are. You have Jesus proclaiming that there will be tax collectors and prostitutes seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb when they gather together with the nation of Israel and they won't be there. He's, he's laying out the hard-heartedness. He's calling those things out. And, and now in 22, this last half of 22, they're going to now turn their attention to oppose. Everything Jesus has done leading up to this moment has been to talk about and try to establish what is the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. We've heard this phrase over and over again and throughout the parables. And now you have four sets of questions. One's going to come from Jesus, three from those who oppose him, three from traditional enemies that hate each other but are united in their hatred of God. And this should cause you to ask yourself a question. Because throughout history, throughout the history of mankind, it has been a simple matter for man to unite in his rebellion against God and the extremely difficult task of uniting in submission to God. And we're going to talk about maybe why that is, although I won't be able to spend as much time as I'd like to on it. <clears throat> but as, as, our, as our time allows us, we're going to look at that. Remember the Tower of Babel. What was man united in? Rebellion against God. So what did God do? Confused the languages, right? Man dispersed into different tribes, nations, tongues. And the next thing you see the Lord do is call his own peculiar people, right? The nation of Israel through Abraham who followed him because he believed God. Right? So from Genesis 12 till today, December 11th, man following God has always done it the same way, by faith. We follow him by faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. We see this Throughout Israel, Israel, there was always a remnant and there was always a rebellious Israel. What was the distinction? Was the distinction that the remnant of Israel wore a certain kind of clothing and the others didn't? What was the distinction? The remnant of faithful Israel, should that should be a clue, right? They trusted in God Almighty, Their hope was in him and not an idol or not the, the, the other nations around them. So by faith, we see this, this expression of what it means to truly follow God. How, how do we follow the Lord today? 
By faith. Oh, isn't it interesting? By faith. We, what's the book of Hebrews say? You can please God a thousand different ways. Is that what it says? What's it say? Without faith, it is impossible for you to please God. For a follower of God must believe that he is. Oh, crazy, huh? And is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Oh, man. So we see this, all of these things kind of laid out. We see this reality. is This is part of the reality of what it means to follow the Lord and be a part of God's plan and purpose. And as we look at this section, you're going to see those who are in opposition. This is the rebellious horde, not the believing remnant. Okay? So anytime we see, and we talk in terms of the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel is always divided into the rebellious horde, the many, and the believing remnant, the few. Those who follow the wide path and those who take the narrow, okay? So we see these things laid out. So we're going to have these four questions. Last week, a lot of people will point to this and say that before the sacrificial lamb is accepted for sacrifice, it had to go through an examination. And so there are many who will say, this is that examination. They're examining Jesus. They're going to ask him questions. But this is not an examination like we're trying to find out how holy and righteous you are. This is an examination to make him stumble, to make him fall. Let's look at what the scripture lays out for us. <clears throat> it says in verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. That's interesting. Does that sound like somebody who wants an answer? The first three questions are going to be given to Jesus Christ are from people who don't want an answer. Have you ever had somebody who doesn't want to answer ask you a question? <clears throat> are you able to tell what those questions are? Like, could God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? What's the purpose of the question? It, it's a... Those questions, just so you know, those philosophical questions are, are designed to deny that God is all-powerful and that God is all-knowing. But you know, in reality, all they do, all they, all they complete is the idea that human philosophy at describing God's power and ability falls short. We don't have words. You ever found yourself at a limitation for words? <laughs> those, those are the times when I speak in things that aren't words. Groanings that cannot be uttered. Usually it happens when I'm irritated. I'm afraid if I make actual syllables, it'll be bad. So we don't want to do that. Words have limit, and our ability as human beings to describe the undescribable God, well, they fall short. And our philosophies to describe what that all means, they fall short. 
And one of the beautiful tests of logic and philosophy is that you can always de design a philosophy to bring, make another philosophy look like it doesn't work. They have questions that they don't want answers to. They got a political question about taxes. That's the first one we're going to look at. Political question about taxes. They got a doctrinal question about the resurrection. They got an ethical question about the law. And then Jesus has a question about who is Messiah. And there's a reason they're not going to ask him any more questions after this. Now you have joined together. Look at verse 16. The Pharisees went and plotted him in his words. And they sent their disciples along with the Herodians. Now maybe we don't understand that this is a weird group. Okay, first off, the Pharisees wouldn't be there themselves. So they sent their disciples. Because if they hung out with the Herodians, they would, might get some of their dirtiness on them. The Pharisees are extreme law keepers. They are in direct opposition to all things Roman. The Romans should be gone. They're not really down with... Uh, with Rome having them in a position of oppression. And the Herodians, they get all their power and wealth from the Romans. So they're in support of the Romans. So basically you have a group of people who are, who, who are against the tax and you have a group of people who are for the tax, but they're both going together to try to mess Jesus up because the one thing they can focus their attention on is rebellion against God. And so they come. And so they come. And so they come and they say that the Herodians <clears throat> probably are the ones speaking. The reason for that is the flattery dripping out of their mouth. You see it? Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. And you're not swayed by appearances. That's a mouth dripping with flattery. The Bible says to beware of that. You already know that, right? If somebody comes up like that, what's the next thing you say? What do you want? What do you want? Because you're not, this is not true. If it was true, they would follow him, wouldn't they? But they're not following him. They're just laying out their plan to trap him. Psalms 2.2, it says, The kings of the earth will set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. Where is the rebellion? It's against God and against his anointed. They are, they are shaking off the, the uh, desire to be obedient to God in any way. The rebellion is not just some misguided thing. This is their heart. Psalm 59.3 says, For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. Had Jesus done something to them? No. He spoke the truth. Have you in the last three years ever seen someone pour out hatred and vitriol upon someone else who was speaking the truth? Weird, huh? Man can always unite in rebellion against God. And so here we see them doing this. 
So they say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So here's the problem. Are taxes lawful? Now verse 18 declares that Jesus is aware of what they're doing. But Jesus aware of their, what's that word? Malice. That's the intent to do harm. Their intent is to do harm to him. He's, he's aware of their intent. And he says to them, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Now, you need to know the tensions are rising. And they're going to crescendo next week, right before Christmas, in the woes that Jesus is going to proclaim. So the tension is rising. Jesus is declaring them, look, you're, you are hypocrites. Why are you here to test me? You don't want to know the answer. You don't care. Herodians want the tax. Pharisees don't want the tax. You don't care what I have to say. You just want, to, you want me to say something that you can use against me, that you can use to, to tear down what's going on. Jesus was not afraid to tell them the truth. You don't care about the answer. The answer doesn't matter to you. I think it's okay when you're confronted with some of these questions to be able to say, Do you, does it really matter to you what the answer is? Because oftentimes we can hear the dripping rebellion in the voice, can't we? So Jesus, he says to them, show me the coin for the tax. So they brought to him a Daenerys and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus makes the principle clear. He's going to say, give tax to whom tax is due. Give, he didn't say give more than what tax is due. You can work on that. But he does say, render taxes. Do you think there was a, I don't know, a more corrupt government, civil government than Rome in Israel? I mean... You don't think that the current government that we have is somehow more wicked than all the wicked governments that have gone before them. So we look at it. This is his declaration. Give unto Caesar what goes to Caesar. But that's not the end of the declaration, is it? He says, next, render unto God what? Okay, so the person showing you the coin... Jesus says, whose image is on the coin? Let me ask you this. Whose image is on the person? The Bible would declare in the book of Genesis that we are all created in the image of God. And there is something that God is due from all of creation. Amen? So give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God the things that belong to God. And I believe it's the second part of that phrase that really captures the hearts of those who came to trap him. Because they're looking for a reason to be angry and upset. 
in Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered, standing before um, the Sanhedrin who were commanding them as the local magistrate and government, commanding them not to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter responded and said, we must obey God rather than man. You also have 1 Peter 2.13 and Romans 13, which would declare, be subject for the Lord, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it's to the emperor as supreme or he goes on and gives a series of examples. So the Bible lays out for us both. So there is a time for man to obey God rather than man. Yes? And there is an attitude in the heart of man to rebel against men no matter what they do. Look, uh, maybe some of you don't have it. But I don't believe it. Maybe some of you, when you see the speed limit sign out here, you think man shall obey the laws around him. And maybe you don't. When the Bible lays out this distinction for us, we ought to give unto the... the Civil authorities, the, the uh, authority do them. And we ought to also recognize when they're in rebellion against God. And you have a lot of civil authorities in rebellion against God. Currently, Everywhere. Buell is not immune. We are following the same trajectory as Twin Falls, following the same trajectory as Boise. We will all be in that same boat. There is a time for the voice of believers united together in submission to God to be heard. And there is a time for them to go the speed limit, right? So we can see how God's word would have us do both, but the overarching theme is to render unto God the things that are God's. What, what, does, what is it that you owe God? You're gonna, you're gonna hear about it in this chapter. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? So, so what is it that I owe God? Love at least. Worship. Praise. Glory. I mean, the list goes on and on. Why? Because his image is on me. The Bible tells us that in verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. So he shut their mouth. Because they walked away realizing Oh, yeah, I owe God something, and I, I have not rendered to the Lord what's due him. And their argument dissipated. That word, they were marveled. It literally means they were dumbfounded. They couldn't think of how to respond to that because they were facing their own guilt before a holy God. Spoken 
by holy God in the flesh standing in front of them. It's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. But not to be outdone, the Sadducees are next in line to take a shot. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they kind of start to walk away, and the Sadducees are like, oh, we got them. We got them. We're going to impale him on the horns of dilemma. So that same day, the Sadducees came to him, <coughs> who say there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question. Now, the Sadducees come from Zadok. Zadok was a good priest. He was a, he was a godly man, a godly example. We read about him in Old Testament scripture. And his children, his family, and those who follow him eventually grow corrupt and become what we call the Sadducees, who would only consider the first five books of the Bible as the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And because, in their view, those five books didn't talk about a resurrection, they didn't believe in a resurrection. But they also didn't believe in Satan, and those five books talk about him. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They were what we would consider the extreme liberal of their day in terms of their theology. And they are going to come to Jesus with a theological question designed not to give an answer, but just to cause a problem, to show there's some failure in the logic or the understanding of the Messiah. So in verse 24, they say, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. <clears throat> this is what's called the Leverite marriage. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, to ensure that a family didn't end up falling out of the nation of Israel because they, they sometimes, right, we've all, we all know people, we've all seen people, who have not been able to have children. And so there was, there was a, a, a desire for others to raise up children for them. And if that occurred in a, in a brother, if there was a man who died and his wife, he had never fathered a child, his wife would be taken by his brother so that she might have a child and then she would raise him under, her, under the brother who died's name. So he would get the inheritance from that brother. The land wouldn't diminish. The people wouldn't diminish. This was part of God's purpose. Yeah, I get it. Culturally, that's weird for us. Okay? Just so you know, there's going to be a fair amount of culturally weird things in the Bible. This will not be the last one you bump into. So, in, in the... Uh, Apocrypha, pseudopographia, in the, in the books that are not considered biblical, at least by Protestants. Uh, try to remember the book. I've lost it. It might be Tobet. But anyways, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, if you want to know, hit me up and I'll, I'll get it for you. But in an apocryphal book, there's a story of a woman who had a demon. And everybody she married, the demon would jump out and kill the man. And the story, the woman just married into a band of seven brothers. Now look, 
I come to this story and I'm, I'm like, look, I, you guys have been reading too many horror books. You, you create, you take the story, but they don't believe in demons. So, you know, this is just happenstance. And I'm not saying that that story is real. It was just a story that is in what is called an apocryphal book. You guys, is, are you guys familiar with apocryphal books? The gospel of Thomas, anybody heard of the gospel of Thomas? Is neither a gospel or written by Thomas. So when you say, why is the gospel of Thomas not in the Bible? I'll give you a quick lesson. It's not a gospel and it's not written by Thomas. It, it doesn't appear until the fifth or sixth century when you start to see it. And in order to be saved, um, there is a massive gender change that occurs. If a woman wants to go to heaven, she must become a man at the end of the gospel of Thomas. So you, what you should do right now is go, what? Yeah. So I don't want you, just so you don't sit around and think, oh, you know, there was the Illuminati got together. And they picked what goes in the Bible. You guys have all heard this story. I know you have. They say it was a council of Nicaea. And they gathered and they threw those books out. And they might have been good books. Okay. Lesson number one has nothing to do with this sermon, so I won't stay here long. That never happened. That never happened. There is no governing authority over the Bible. The Bible came through the use of its people. We have multiple, 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 multiple codexes. That's books where they put together all the scrolls of the books of the Bible. And do you know what is never in one of those? The Gospel of Thomas. In fact, there are four Gospels found in those. You want to guess what they are? You've heard of them before. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are always together. Isn't that weird? Just like they are in the Bible on your lap. So don't be distracted by the crazy people who write crazy things. Just so you know, someone can post anything on Twitter and Twitter can say it's true and it doesn't make it true. You, you've learned that in the last four years, haven't you? The truth police are corrupt. I digress. I don't even know why I was talking about that. But the point is, there was a story in the Apocrypha that kind of mirrored what the Sadducees are using. But the idea is, do you think that they really want to know? Are they really asking because they want to know what happens to this poor woman? No, they, they could care less. They could care less. Look, so there were seven brothers. And the first married and died and had no offspring and left his wife to his brother and the second and the third down to the seventh and finally the woman died. What a happy story. <coughs> Their question is designed to say, see how dumb the idea of the resurrection is. Who's, whose wife is she? To whom does she belong? They, they all spent time with her. So how, how could this be worked out? in the resurrection. And I want you to see what Jesus' response is. First, he says, you are wrong. Don't be afraid to say that. 
you have all had conversations with somebody where you were pretty sure your next words were should have been, you are wrong. But you're afraid to tell them, you are wrong. Don't be afraid to say, you are wrong. Jesus said it. It's all right to use it. He says, you are wrong. Why? Because you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, what was the appeal to authority that Jesus made? To the word of God. So I know in our world today, you're not allowed to make an appeal of authority to the word of God. But look, I'm a Christian. So if you don't want me to appeal to the authority of a Christian, don't ask me a question. I'm a Christian. I appeal to the word of God. That's my final arbiter of truth. Amen? So don't be afraid to appeal to the word of God. I know, I know, I know. They'll, they'll throw at you. They'll say that's a circular argument to say that the, well, I believe in God. The Bible says there's a God. And then the next response, it's okay to say, well, you're wrong. Because you don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Is that a true statement? It is a true statement. You don't understand the power of God nor the scripture. He says in verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given her marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I've been asked this question a lot. I get asked this question a lot, and I want to try to simplify this statement that Jesus makes. At least what I think he's talking about is this. The resurrection isn't about marriage. Resurrection is not about marriage. It's not about who you're going to be married to, who you were married to. That does not mean somehow you're not going to know your husband or wife in heaven. And it does not mean that there's not some form of relationship. What does the Bible say about marriage? What God has joined together, what's it go? You guys know how it ends. Let no man separate. So who gets to separate it? All right. That's not my job. So if that's how things are when we get to heaven, I, I can tell you this. I can tell you this. The relationship you have in heaven will be better than the one you have here. So if you have a glorious marriage and you're thinking, man, I never want this marriage ever to end. When I get to heaven, I just want to be with you forever. Just know your relationship will be better in heaven than it is here. That's something I can celebrate, isn't it? And if you say, oh, Lord, God Almighty. I have barely endured this marriage all this time. And I have this one hope. Your relationship in heaven will be better. So it should work both ways. <laughs> it should work both ways. The point that Jesus is making is the resurrection isn't about marriage. It's not about who does she belong to. Because in the resurrection, who do you belong to? Oh my gosh, we, we belong to Jesus Christ, right? He says that wherever he is, there I will be also. The resurrection is about being in the presence of Almighty God. And to enjoy the reality of, for which I was made. All the garbage that sin has brought into my life is going to be purged. And 
I will be in that place a better real me than I can ever be here. And when we get to heaven, Charles Spurgeon likes to say this, we are not going to be dumber there than we are here. <laughs> so yes, you will still know each other. My children will still be my children. My family will still be my family, although the relationship in heaven will not be about that. Does that make sense? And there will not be loss as a result. There will only be gain. So hold on to the truth that God delivers. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not about marriage. They're, they don't marry. They're not given in marriage. It's not about having children. It's not about all the things that earth was about. When life down here. He's saying it's, it's more. It's greater. It's better. So he's clarifying the state of marriage. He's, he is um, confronting their error, right? That they don't understand the scripture. And then he says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not written or have you not read what was written by God? So that just that statement, you could, you should park on for a minute. Have you not read what was written by God? Who's the author? He writes through human beings, right? Yeah, but he is right here. Jesus is saying, who is the author? You guys have read, even if you only look at the first five books. You know what you can learn about the first five books? That God made this declaration. I am. He did not say, I was. Do you understand what that means? In order for God to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have to be. Otherwise, the grammar would go like this. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're dead and gone now. But that's not what he says. What does he say? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob buried at the time of Moses? For sure. For sure, in the cave of Machpelah, where one day I will trod with my own feet, the Lord willing. <laughs> He's set up several roadblocks so far, but I'm hoping for an open door. <clears throat> they are gone, but they are not gone. Do you understand? And so Jesus is saying there, there is a resurrection of the dead. You walk around and proclaim all day long that you serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Luke 20, referring to this as well, he says, uh, verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and of Isaac, uh, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. God is the God of life. That's why all the different things center, all, the, all our answers looking at what, what is the direction that God would have us go is always toward life. Always. Why as a church do we stand against uh, assisted suicide? Because our choice should always be directed toward life. Why? Because God is the God of life, of living. 
Why is it wrong to abort a child? Because taking a life of a child is always wrong. There was one point that God gave us where we could take a life. That's the only one. So when we, when we look at that, why does God condemn homosexuality? Because there's no life. What happens if all of society becomes homosexual? Should that happen? What happens? The end of society. There's no life. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And so, when the crowd heard it, they're astonished. Whoa, it's amazing. And the Sadducees slink back. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, you see it. Oh, Jesus got them. Okay, we're next. Because they sent their disciples before, so it's really their disciples who failed. The Pharisees' disciples. Now, the Pharisees, they got a plan. <clears throat> so when they had heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? We've already broached that a little bit, right? What is the great commandment of the law? 613 commandments. 613 letters, individual Hebrew letters, in the Ten Commandments. There are 248 parts of the body as reckoned by uh, the Hebrew. And there are 248 positive commands. <clears throat> there are 365 negative commands. One for every day of the year this is the law what's the greatest one what's the most important one and so jesus responds in this way he gives priority to the love of god he says you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the great and first commandment. To love the Lord your God. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. Vechavta et Adonai Elohecha Bechol. Levavka Obecho. Navshecha Obecho. Mehodecha. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The Shema. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. He is one. He is unity incarnate. He is absolute unity. He is absolute love and justice and wrath all at the same time. He is beyond our comprehension. And the priority of the law is to love God. Our pursuit as believers and followers of Jesus Christ is to love God this way. <clears throat> to love the Lord your God. And then Jesus says the second is like it. What's that one? 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you shall love your neighbor. And in these two hang all the law and the prophets. Sometimes when we view Old Testament versus New Testament, we divide it up as though God got saved at the end of the Old Testament and everything changed. But in reality, what we see is the same story going all the way through Scripture. How do the remnant follow God? By faith. How do you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ? By faith. What is our goal? What is our, what, where shall our obedience lie? You know, that list of do's and don'ts you got on your fridge? Let's just put two there. Love God, love your neighbor. All the law and the prophets hang on these. I said in the beginning that we, there, there's a great challenge that we can see in humanity. The ability to be united in rebellion and divided in love. Is that how it is supposed to be? We are called, in John 13, 35, Jesus said, this is how they will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another. Is that how you would mark the relationship between the denominations in the Christian world? What's the problem? I'm going to tell you today, the problem is pride. Because we, as believers, care more about being right than we care about loving our neighbor. And you cannot allow a civil conversation for a non-essential doctrine in the word. Because you and I, we have our own special little hang-ups, don't we? You got stuff you don't like, but you've been to a church and you go, ooh, it gave me the heebie-jeebies. I, I'm not going anywhere near that again. Here's what the, here's what the word of God says. First John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, so we ought to love what? First John 4, 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his, he's a liar. For who he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if you are not capable of loving a brother in Christ because of a, of a distinction in non-essential things, I'm, I'm, I'm using this purposefully loosely. There should be some level of, of truth to which we hold. So just for the sake of argument, we'll call that the Apostles' Creed. All right, so are we, are we able to be united in love though we, even though we may not agree on everything? For example, one church, they, they might baptize a baby. Does the Bible say, if your brother baptizes a baby, thou shalt not love him? We need to ask ourselves these questions. Why can the world unite in rebellion and the church cannot unite in love with Christ? Why does God say in Proverbs 6, he 
hates pride. Because pride is what causes us to, to, to divide in the first place. In the book of Corinth, what is it that Paul said? Some of you say, I am of Peter. Some of you say, I am of Paul. Some of you say, I am of, what was the other one? Apollos, and the fourth one was Christ. They're the super spiritual ones. They were already dividing. There was already schismata. 1 John 5, 1 through 3 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What, what does the Bible use as the foundational principle? Who's Jesus? Are you with me? Might not be, but it's okay. But the, the foundational principle, according to John, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. You notice he put whoever has been born of him. By this we know we love the children of God. We love God and we keep his commandments. You just read two of them. To love God and... Huh. Well, I know there's somebody here going, but Lord, who really is my neighbor? I don't have to do that story, do I? <laughs> Everybody remembers the Good Samaritan? Did it cost the guy something? Yeah, so loving somebody's going to cost you something? Sorry. That is how it's going to be. I think the key to unity... I'm going to do a few more verses, so lunch might be a little late. I think the key of unity, I'm just going to touch on it and we're going to go on. I think the key of unity to see the churches unite in love in Christ. Who's the head of the church? Jackie? Is the head of the church Southern Baptist Convention? Is the head of the church somebody else's convention? Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So we should be able to unite in Christ and love one another and we should see that supernatural, like Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples because you're going to love each other. You're going you're gonna to be able to gather together. Just briefly, this is a side note, briefly look over at Romans 12. One of the, one of the guiding principles of the book of Romans, I believe, is uh, unity. And the reason why is because I, want, I don't want to get too far off the rails, but the reason why in the book of Romans we see that the, the impetus for writing the book is that there was an expulsion of the Jews, and then five, seven, ten years later the Jews come back. And now you have at the end of the book of Romans groups of names from other churches that are all Greek or all Jewish. So there's a division. And so it's going to begin talking to each group about what, what, what's your hang-up. Oh, you, you, got, you Greeks, you, you trust in wisdom. Oh, you Jews trust in the law. You're going, to, you're going to see this build. By the time we get to Romans 12, we're in, the practical, we're in the practical point. So I just want you to look at the practical points and say, if I live by these <coughs> practical points, could I see unity in the body of Christ? 12, from 12.9 on. It says, let love be genuine. Real love. Crazy. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another, showing honor. Do not be lazy or slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. 
Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it up to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What if the church was governed by such principles? Would it change the reason why we are always fighting with one another and not united together for the kingdom of God, for his purposes? Well, now while the Pharisees were gathered together there, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is, the, is he? <coughs> so they said he's the son of David. So Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, led by the Spirit, see the phrase, in the Spirit, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the Psalms. Jesus is saying the Psalms were inspired by God, right? How is it that David said, <coughs> in the Spirit, he calls him Lord. He's asking, why does the Father, who is supposed to be honored in their culture above children, call his son Adonai? Why does he call him Adonai? You say, where does he do that? He does this in Psalm 110 verse 1. We're going to look there in a moment. He says, how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? So Jesus straight to their face is saying, who's Messiah? What does the scripture say? They don't want to answer. Why don't they want to answer? Because they would have to say what he's affirming. I am two things, the son of man and the son of God. And, and both of those, those two statements, one refers to his divinity and the other to his right to be king. And it wouldn't be the ones you think. Son of man refers to his divinity. It's a divine title taken from the book of Daniel. And son of God is the title for the king. Every king would, would declare himself as the little son of God, right? I'm God's, I'm God's servant to be king until the son of God is also the son of man. And then that's God as king. 
So he's making this declaration to them. The Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When did he do that? Daniel. In Daniel, one likened to the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? He's the example in Daniel's scripture of God the Father. And there's one rising up as though from earth, the Son of Man rising up before God Almighty. And what does God say to him? Sit here on my throne. To whom does God the Father give a throne to sit? Does the Lord say, I will share my glory with anybody who wants to come by? What does scripture say? The Lord says, I will not share my glory with anybody. So when he does to the son of man, what does that make the son of man? It makes the son of man God in flesh. The incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. <clears throat> Who, according to the Apostles' Creed, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified dead and buried, descended into the grave. On the third day he arose and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> Jesus is asking them who are testing him, who's Messiah? They know. Don't think they don't know. But what's it say in verse 46? They were not able to answer him. So they didn't ask any more questions. The time of testing is over. There will be a moment when Jesus departs from the temple area and makes this declaration. Your house is left to you desolate. He does not call it his father's house anymore. He does not call it his house because the glory of God is leaving the temple and the glory of God is going to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where the glory of God will be crucified, will die, as a propitiation, substitute sacrifice for the sin, not only my sin, John says, but the sins of the whole world. And how will the whole world follow him? What does it say? And everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have. How do we follow Christ? We follow him by faith. For we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. We are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who in likewise and like way that he left, he will return Again, that's why we say there will be a day. And that day will be better than any day you can possibly imagine. So Jesus is going to now, as we move into 23, Jesus is now going to declare woes 
to the unbelief of Israel. Don't lose context of that because we're headed to Matthew 24. Right? And we want to understand clearly what's going on in Matthew 24 and 25 as we see the Olivet Discourse. But I promise you this, on Christmas Day, I'm going to do a Christmas sermon about Christmas. And I'll save Matthew 24 for the day after, or the Sunday after. Fair? All right. Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, Lord, I just pray that we can, we can fathom together with all the saints what is the height, breadth, width, and depth of the love of God, which we see in Christ Jesus our Lord. For this is how I understand the love of God, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That he came born of a virgin. He walked this world. He shared his wisdom and his power and his understanding. He raised up 12 <coughs> through whom he would reclaim the nations so that the scriptures in the Old Testament would be true that there will be in Christ every tribe nation and tongue gathered together. When we see the 144,000 standing together with Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 7, who is with them? An innumerable host from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Why would Paul make the declaration, there is now therefore no my gosh, so beautiful. And now there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, man, woman. We all can find unity in Christ. Jesus prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Lord, may they have unity even as you and I, father and son, have unity. What does that look like? Jesus prayed. The Father is moving. The Spirit is empowering. But in the end, we, we have to choose. We can spend our whole life being bitter and angry, filled with malice, or we can do what Scripture tells us to do, and we can cast off the old man and walk in the new. For we in Christ are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for works that God has ordained that we should walk in them. We don't have to be that old man anymore. And all of that was wrought in Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Our Lord Jesus, I am amazed and I stand amazed at the precipice of scripture as your word makes declarations that boggle my mind and I look around and I recognize that this is not the reality of, of what you proclaim so we are in error 
pray that every believer here would draw a circle around themselves and pray that God would revive me again. To walk in truth and love. That we might see what Christ spoke of, lived out in our midst. Lord, I pray for every unbeliever that's here that they would know that the greatest gift ever given was Emmanuel, God with us. You came, you took upon yourself as the sin sacrifice, the sin of the world. You have made a way the scarlet thread of redemption through which men can enter. So I pray if there is any here, they would cry out to God in an attitude of repentance, turn from their sin and turn toward Christ. Trust in him and he will save you. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified this season as we live out our life before you. And as we gather in prayer today, Lord, I pray your spirit would go through us, among us, in us, that we would rightly reflect who you are in what we do and what we say and where we go and who we are. For my identity is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I was crucified with him. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the power for the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ. Empowered by his spirit, led by him. May we see the day the church stands together in truth, led by Christ, and impact our world. For she needs it now. So God, we give you praise. We pray your spirit would descend upon this place. As we draw near to you in prayer, Lord, that we would take that time to pray and that you be glorified as your house is a house of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.